Welcome to the Brutal, Bizarre, and Boozy podcast. I'm Declan, the son. And I'm Jane, the mom. Enjoy a drink with us while we tell you some wild stories of the brutal and bizarre variety. Please keep in mind some of our stories might be upsetting to young or sensitive ears. This is the podcast where we talk about brutal crimes, bizarre occurrences, and get you drunk with cocktails themed around one of our stories. To lighten things up, we like to end our time with a chaser. Alrighty, Mom, what story do you have for us today? Well, I am going to be telling you the story about the Donner Party. Ooh, I think we've all heard of that story, so that should be interesting. I think most people have, too, yeah. Before we get started, though, I had um, a few shout-outs that I wanted to make for some other podcasts and make some recommendations for people. The first one is the Middle-Aged and Creeped Out podcast, which I just love the name right there. Uh, they It is hosted by three friends, Todd, Sean, and Nate. They do mini episodes and then longer episodes where they go deeper into a dive on those stories. They talk about everything from the unexplained to paranormal and creepy stuff, like haunted places and scary things. So... Uh, it's really cool with a variety of topics, and uh, they make their creepy stories fun just because they're friends and they're having a good time and they've got a good dynamic. So highly recommend that one. I've been binging it. Another one that I have gotten into is the True Crime Banter Podcast, and I know I've heard a lot of people say they don't like some of the podcasts that get too far into the banter. And so this one has banter in the name, but they embrace it and they only do the banter basically at the beginning. So it just gives you a little bit of banter and then they get into their story. Their theme is bringing you a dose of murder relaxation, which cracks me up because I think a lot of the true crime buffs like us, agree with that idea. It's hosted by Riley and Christian, and they have a really good dynamic between them with their bantering. They also have a YouTube channel, and some of their episodes have video, so it's kind of fun to watch them interact with each other. And then the last one that I wanted to recommend is the Bizarre Encounters podcast. It's hosted by Shane and Ghost, and each one of them have other podcasts that they do as well, and then they kind of team up on this one. Shane has uh, the podcast called Inquiries of Our Reality, and Ghost has the podcast called My Third Eye, and both of them talk about different things and fun things, and we're actually planning a fun episode with the Bizarre Encounters podcast soon. So stay tuned, everybody, for that. It's going to be a lot of fun. They often have guests who talk about their own encounters and research and things like that. So me personally, not having any real significant encounters that would take longer than about two minutes to explain, uh, we should have some fun figuring out what we're going to talk about when we team up with them. So that will be a lot of fun. So what are you going to tell us about today, Declan? So today I'm going to be talking about the Kelly Hopkinsville encounter. And to go with this story, I have prepared a mint julep. Very classic drink. It this is recipe, a classic drink. Yeah, it's got a long history. Longer Longer than I expected, honestly, while I was researching out, I saw some of these dates and I was like, holy cow, this thing's been around. Oh, cool. Like, yeah. So this recipe calls for eight mint leaves, one quarter ounce, the one quarter ounce simple syrup, two ounces of bourbon, garnish with a mint sprig. And optional, you can also put some Angostura bitters in there. 
So to make this drink, you muddle up the mint leaves in the glass before you add the ingredients. Then you top with all your liquids. And I I use some crushed ice just because I, I thought the texture would go good and it would help dilute it a little bit quicker and make it a, a bigger drink. Mm-hmm. I used crushed ice as well. Yeah, it, it just looks better. Makes it. Did you add your optional mint sprig? I did not because, you know, I'm lame and I never garnish my stuff. But there's a lot of mint already in it. So I figured that the garnish wasn't going to make any difference really. So, yeah, I just since I had the mint out, I was like, fuck, I might, might as well just put a stick in there. Just for fun. Valid, <laughs> valid point. I mean, I very well could have just dropped a couple leaves and a sprig on top and it would have been fine. But then I th- I always feel like the garnish gets in my way when I go to drink it. Like it's just in there for a second and then I take it out. Uh, so why bother? Well, the what it's supposed to do is it's supposed to – you're supposed to smell it and it's supposed to af- enhance the flavor of the drink. But there's already so much right. in here that – Exactly. Oh, point. There's a lot of mint. I can smell the mint just coming up to the glass. So, I mean, you know, if it was outside the glass, it would have been a little stronger probably, but I don't. I don't even know. smell I got any a mint, lot of mint. My nose you is You don't. Well, up, so. my, I smell the my, the mint that I got were huge leaves. They were really mm. big leaves. They were almost like the size of basil leaves. So they they were really big. So I got a lot of mint in mine. <laughs> okay, shall we give this a try? Yes, let's give it a little sip. Okay, let's give it a sample. Mm. That really is better than I thought it would be. I thought it was going to be of, pure fire. What kind of and bourbon did you use? I did Maker's Mark. Okay. I did a Evan Williams Honey, which I'm 90% sure is a bourbon. I looked it up, and Evan Williams makes bourbon. so Okay. Pretty sure it's bourbon. So I used honey bourbon, and that's all I can smell and taste, and it's super good. Oh. Okay. Mine was just a, just a straight bourbon with mm. no flavor. And so I really get the mint, which... I don't typically like, I'm not a huge mint fan, which I think I've said in the past on other episodes, but it's really nice and it's refreshing. I actually think that this would be a fun drink to have in a social setting. Yeah, I I haven't had too many bourbon drinks, but I feel like they're heavier than most, if that makes any sense. But this is pretty light Mm -hmm. and refreshing and I don't know, it's a, it's a good sipper. I did add a little bit of extra syrup to mine because I like sweeter things. And I was <laughs> honestly a little scared of just the bourbon because yeah. that's all that's in it. I don't blame you. It's just yeah, it's bourbon and simple. simple syrup. And the last time we had that whiskey drink that was basically alcohol and alcohol, I was very... The Godfather, was that, that's what it was? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, it that was, was horrible. Pretty rough. It was terrible. I hated every <laughs> second of it. Um, but I think I will finish this one. And I only had like three sips of the Godfather. So hey, we're yeah, already I made, ahead. I made this last night and I was a huge fan. So yeah, I think this nice. is going to my recipe book, that's for sure. Nice. Very cool. So the mint julep was created as a medicinal concoction used to settle the stomach became a popular cocktail in the late 1700s with the rich and famous since not many had access to ice back then. It became the official drink of the Kentucky Derby in 1938, and nearly 120,000 of these cocktails are served at the Derby every year. Oh, that's a lot. Yeah, so this drink definitely has some history to it. I am... A little confused with the medicinal purpose of it because I know peppermint and mint itself soothes the stomach. 
But I wouldn't think that bourbon would be very soothing on the stomach. Alcohol in general. This was before the 1700s, so they probably – that's like when they use cocaine to treat headaches or something, right? Uh, (laughs) I don't think they were that – Okay. I don't think modern medicine had worked its way into the equation yet. (laughs) Probably working with whatever they got. I mean, if you are drunk off your ass from the bourbon, you're not going to notice your upset stomach anymore. Yeah, your stomach hurts. You drink enough of that, you throw up, and your stomach feels better. Bada boom, bada bing. Yeah. Or you pass out and you don't remember anything because you're laying on the floor. True. Been there, done that. (laughs) So I'm curious about this story that you have to go with this drink because I don't think I've ever heard the name before. I heard it once and it was really hard to find it again. But I I heard this story like a few years ago and it really intrigued me. So I I just had to do it on our podcast. And I'd like to preface this by saying that if you hear crunching in the background, uh, my cat Lulu is currently deciding to eat her food right now. So that is nice. I fed her this morning at 10 and she waited until now to eat. So guess well, the parents are my you child. Know. Hi, Lulu. <laughs> so let me tell you about the Hopkinsville encounter. All right. On the evening of August 21st, 1955, a group of eight people walked into the Hopkinsville police station. They approached an officer and told him a story that called for an unusual police response. Four city police, five state troopers, three deputy sheriffs, and four military police from the nearby U.S. Army Fort Campbell drove to the Sutton Farmhouse located near the town of Kelly in Christian County. Here's what events led to such a strange response. That's a lot of officers. Yeah, I don't think that the military police typically responds to like basic calls, so it must right. be something interesting. Ooh. This sounds scary for that level of response. (laughs) Okay, I'm strapping in. Put my seatbelt on. So Billy Taylor was visiting his friend Elmer Sutton at his farmhouse. Billy went outside to collect some well water when he saw a light streaking through the sky. Billy described it as a really bright light with an exhaust every color of the rainbow. Billy panicked and ran inside to tell the others what he'd seen. Billy also recalls hearing a hissing noise coming from the field behind the barn. Shortly after running inside, the dog started to bark as if someone was approaching the house. Elmer walked to the window to have a look, and what he saw frightened him enough to run to his shotgun and load it full of shells. Uh Uh-oh. Outside the farmhouse, Elmer spotted a three-foot-tall humanoid with silverish skin, a large round head, giant ears, yellow glowing eyes, and long arms that nearly touched the ground. Oh, shit. Billy followed Elmer and grabbed a shotgun before bracing themselves in their home. One of the creatures popped its head in front of the window, and the two fired but missed. Elmer and Billy ran to the door to try and get a glimpse of what they were dealing with. Elmer stepped out onto the porch but didn't see anything. Billy, closely behind, saw an arm reaching down from the roof to touch Elmer's hair. (gasps) Billy let off a warning shot before the creature retreated. The men ran back inside and barricaded the house. They would take shots if they felt threatened, and this went on for hours. Oh, shit. After a while, 
of quiet, the group quickly ran to their cars and made a beeline for the police station. The police arrived and found no evidence other than bullet holes all over the house. That's funny. (laughs) While many police left puzzled, one officer believes the Sutton family and has claimed he also experienced UFOs in the area. Oh. And that is the Kelly Hopkinsville encounter. So how how many people? It was just Billy and Elmer that were the witnesses? No, it was a family of – so family. it was the oh, Sutton okay. family. And oh, okay. um, I think there was a couple more people that were at the farmhouse, but eight people in total. Oh. Yeah, wow. so there were lots of witnesses. But there was no evidence of anything in the field. They didn't see any, like, they didn't see any evidence, basically, of any anything being there. But also that night, there were also other reports from of other UFOs. people in the town. Yeah, of just seeing oh. the light. They just reported seeing a bright light, but didn't really think too much of it. So the hissing sound, did they elaborate on that? Like, did it sound like a mechanical sound or an animal sound, I wonder? So Billy just uh, reported saying that it was a hissing sound. I'm guessing like a, if you ever heard like a hydraulic press or like an, like typical hissing machinery. I'm guessing it sounded like that. And he kind of heard like a crash and then that hissing. Okay, so maybe like the door opening or something. Yeah, something like that. Because that's that's why I was wondering, like the hissing sound, you know, because some animals make a hissing sound. Um, so I didn't know if it was like more of an animalistic sound. Because I don't know, the thing that was on the roof, that could have made some kind of a hissing sound reaching for somebody's head like that. That would scare the shit out of me for sure. Yeah, that. Oh, gosh, I just can't imagine like oh, what. You can't shoot it because it's right next to your friend's head and you're using a shotgun. Yeah. So you just got to like. Well, I'm glad they didn't. Scare it. It's good they didn't end up accidentally shooting each other. Yeah. I. Oh, my gosh. I wish they would have hit one, though, so we could have known. <laughs> if they weren't such yeah. bad shots, maybe we could have figured out what they hit. They should have been doing target practice or something. <laughs> So some people believe that like a lot of a lot of people that are arguing against this are claiming that it was alcohol induced because they were kind of having a party. But I don't think everyone eight people aren't going to be the same amount of drunk to all hallucinate aliens. So no. And they're not going to be able to say it was the same thing, you know, like. Even two people are not going to come up with the same description of something. Even if they're drunk or high or whatever together, it's going to be a different description. So another theory is that it's an owl. I think a lot of people believe that it was, I believe it was a barn owl. But oh, hell. you know, what? some owls have those like weird frills that come off their eyes. Sure, but they don't have long arms and start reaching for somebody's head. They have wings, I guess. That could be thought of as an arm if you've seen two of them. (laughs) They've got double vision. Maybe it looks like an arm. Guess. Well, yeah, but okay, so everybody's drunk and they see an owl. They're not going to describe it the same. True. Even if they, you know, see it... They all see it at the same time. They're all drunk, blackout drunk. They're not going to describe the same thing, I don't think. And owls, the the, ki- the kind of owl that they were t- talking about, it like the biggest they get is around two feet, which is the bottom end of the creature that they described size-wise. So, yeah, that's a good point because they saw it coming at them, right? Like walking yeah. at them. It said it was around three to four feet tall. And owls, I think the they're like biggest 
is about two feet. Hmm. And they don't have ears. Yeah, but some owls do have those like weird frills. And if you like yeah. look at a picture of the creature, they have like a sketch drawing of it. And uh-huh. it, I guess it could be seen as. I don't know. The creature had big ears and they were in the shape of like the weird owl feathers, but Mm. I don't really think it was an owl. Yeah, I have a hard time with the whole owl explanation just based on some other true crime stories where the uh, an owl was blamed and that's like the running joke of a lot of stuff. Oh, it was an owl. Yeah, I I don't think out Apparently, owls are very territorial of their nests, but I've hmm. never seen one closer than like 30 feet away in a tree. True. I've seen them fly I, around. I haven't That's seen one it. since we lived in, or since I lived in Klamath. Yeah. I don't think you have them very much. I wouldn't think that you have them in the area where you're living now. Probably not. I heard one the other night when I let the dogs out, though, doing the the little who thing. That was it. That's cool. Yeah. So what is the brutal story you have for us today, Mom? Well, because Thanksgiving is here, I wanted to do something kind of... All right. It's fucked up. (laughs) I will say it. Uh, I was waiting for you to come up up with a good way to spin it, but... (laughs) It's fucked up. I can't help it. But I thought, you know, Thanksgiving, let's do the Donner Party. So not meant to be insensitive. I just thought, you know, what better time? So I don't think any of them are alive anymore. So No, I don't think so. All right. So here we go. Imagine you and your family have decided to move across the country. You pack your supplies, you plan for hard days, and say goodbye to friends and family. The goal is moving to another state that you have heard will have untold fortunes and hopefully better opportunities than where you currently live. You know the trip will be difficult and long, but you decide to go with a group of other families who will be making the same trip. Since you have never made the trip before, you rely on someone who says they know the way and can help and that they even know a shortcut. That's a problem right there. In your wildest dreams, you probably never imagined that the horrors and hardships you would have to endure over the many months the journey would end up taking, months longer than anyone said it would take. But I've gone too far. Let me start over and tell you important details. It's 1846. You're traveling in a wagon train with livestock from Illinois to California along the Oregon Trail. This is the story about the Donner Party. So, I think like you said, most people know the Donner Party story, but, and it's a very long story, but I condensed it. This is the abridged version most people know just like the basic, but there there's a lot of details to the story. Yes. It's it's and wild. I, like this could yep. be a three hour podcast if you wanted it to, but it's not going to be. <laughs> it is not going to be, everybody. Just don't worry. So the Donner Party is named after the main leader of the party. It is also called the Donner Reed Party. However, it wasn't officially named the Donner Party until months into the trip. In 1846, April of 1846, George Donner, his brother Jacob, and James Reed left Springfield, Illinois to start their journey to California. They were traveling with their families and some servants, as well as some men hired to drive the wagons and livestock. 
The group planned the departure of their trip to begin after the rainy season, with the intent of finishing the trip in California before snowstorms occurred in the Sierra Nevada mountains. So they waited until the rainy season was over because that caused a lot of mud on the trails and things like that. Remember, this is 1846. They're not having paved roads or anything like that. So they don't want to get bogged down in the mud. So they were trying to wait for drier times. And then they also had to time it uh, so that they didn't get stuck in the mountains where there was snow. Because a large mountain range they would have to go through in order to get to California, which was the Sierra Nevada mountains. At the time, the journey was estimated to take four to six months. I personally cannot think of doing something like that. I'm all for a road trip, but I get pretty annoyed after about eight hours in the car. So I'm not... I don't know what I would do if you said, let's go on a six-month road trip. So feel free to interrupt me if I'm spoiling it, but they're using a new like experimental route, right? There's another route that was supposed to take longer, but... Yes, I actually, that is part of the story that I get into because it was such a huge part of why things happened to them the way it did. So Okay. I might cut that part during, out. <laughs> okay. <laughs> during the months of May and June, the wagon train with the Donner and Reed families met up with and joined other wagon trains also going to California. At the end of June, the larger wagon train had made it to Fort Laramie, which is in present-day Wyoming. At the fort, James Reed met two men, James Kleiman and Lansford Hastings, who had come from California by horseback. Hastings says that he knows a new route, later called the Hastings Cutoff, but Kleiman, who was, he he knew his stuff. He was, you know, a skilled mountain man, basically. He said, don't, don't take it. You need to stay on the normal route. And after a few days, the wagon, the wagon train resumed their trip. A couple of weeks later, as the wagon train is going on down the Oregon Trail, the party is met by a horseback rider who's going east, and he has letters from Lansford Hastings urging everyone, all of the travelers, to divert from the old route and meet him at Fort Bridger so they can be guided on this new and better route to California. Everybody got together, they discussed it and said, you know, what are we going to do? And it was kind of a split decision. Some people wanted to stay on the older route and some people wanted to go on the new route. So after much discussion, um, the larger group divided. The newly formed group that chose to take Hastings' route elected George Donner as their captain, thus making the new group, the Donner Party, and they headed towards Fort Bridger. This is when it got the official name because... That's it was just the Donner and Reed families, basically, and their servants and people that they had hired to help them. A week later, the Donner party arrived at Fort Bridger to learn that Hastings had already left with another wagon train, but he left instructions for everyone else to follow. Hastings claimed his route would cut 350 to 400 miles off the trek, which, I mean, if that's your claim, that right there is I get like why people would want to take that because that's significant and substantial when you think that you're only traveling you know a couple dozen miles I would assume per day so you're looking at cutting some time off there yeah the Donner party decided right exactly I mean it makes sense the Donner party decided to stay at Fort Bridger for a few days and rest before resuming their journey for the first week of August the Donner Party was able to follow Hastings' tracks, but then they received a letter from Hastings saying the road ahead was impassable. He had instructed them to send some riders ahead for further instructions. James Reed and two other men rode ahead. When Reed returned to the group, he explained that Hastings had shown him an alternate route for the group to take. However, this... Right, so they're already on this new cutoff. 
And then the new cutoff, they're like, okay, so you got to take a cutoff from the cutoff, which is bullshit right there. Uh, the new route required them to clear it of trees and bush and brushes. That didn't make any sense. Their Garmin is yelling, rerouting, rerouting. <laughs> yeah. Uh, however, the new route required them to clear it of trees and brush to get the wagons through. Because remember, there's a, it's a wagon train. You have to have a trail yeah. big enough for the wagons to go through. And it has to be smooth enough and, you know, of a specific grade. You know, it can't be too steep. It can't be too rocky. It can't have too much debris in the way. Or you can't get your wagons through. So it's they're like having to, to cut a, trees. It's like trying to drive a Kia through a biking trail. Right. Depending on the biking trail and how big your Kia Mountain is. Mountain biking trail. <laughs> oh, yeah. No, you wouldn't want to do that. No, no. <laughs> yeah. At the end of August, the group found another note from Hastings. So they're doing this. They're, they're taking the brush and they're taking out the trees and they're making their way through as best they can. And then they get a note that says, um, you're going to have to go through an area where there's no water. So you need to start saving as much water as you can because they're getting ready to go through the Great Salt Lake Desert, which is in present-day Utah. On the third day crossing the desert, the group ran out of water, and James Reed's oxen ran off, leaving the Reed family to continue the journey on foot. So it's not bad enough that you're doing this whole thing, and now you got to walk it. How long is that going to... It took the group five days to cross the 80-mile desert, which Hastings had told them was half the size. Fuck. They had lost... Uh-huh. They had lost many cattle and several wagons and had come to the realization that they did not have enough food to make it through the rest of the journey to California. So they made the decision to send a couple of riders ahead to Sutter's Fort to get more supplies. At the end of September, the group arrived at Humboldt River. This is where the cutoff and the original trail converge. It turns out the cutoff was not shorter, but actually 125 miles longer than the original route. Oh my I'd be so God. pissed. I'd be so, so mad. I have a question. Do we know why they're trying to get to California? Is it for the gold rush? Or it was, was not for the gold rush. Okay. Uh, the gold rush came later, but there was a lot of people that were traveling from the Midwest and East and things like that to the West. I believe at the time, and I don't, I didn't see this in the research, but I had heard this in the past that you could get a lot of land for very, very cheap in those new states, like in Oregon and, and California. And so that's why a lot of people wanted to go there because it was better opportunities. And you oh, could okay. have that makes sense. And they were taking cattle and oxen, and so it was like, oh, we're going to go out west and we're going to ranch, kind of thing. So okay, yes. I I think um, if I realized I was shit out of, I was up shit river with no paddle. I mm -hmm. I think I would just find a place to camp for the year, like the forts. I'd just go to the fort and be like, hey, we fucked up. Can we stay here for a year and get our shit right. together and then try again? Well, you know, at this point, it was the end of September, and I think they thought they still had enough time to make it to California and make it to essentially they were shooting for like the Sacramento Valley. And so they were in uh, Nevada, essentially. They made it across Utah. They were trying to get to California. So they were kind of, I mean, if you think about it, they were like, half a state away from getting there i think and so they probably thought oh gosh we you know it, it's smooth sailing from here but they still had the mountain to cross and that was their downfall yeah but so. they're doing it on foot <laughs> yeah crossing a state with the oxen and wagons is different but if you're doing it on foot that's gonna take you way longer yeah so Soon after they 
made it to the point where the routes, the old route and the new route converged. Uh, they, the Donner party, the Donner family splintered off from the main group because they were trying to get there faster. They were like, we got to get there faster. And a few days later, the second part of the group, uh, when they were traveling, there was an argument between two of the men. James Reed attempted to intervene and stop the dispute. In the struggle, Reed was hit over the head and he retaliated by stabbing the man with his hunting knife and killing him. Nice. One member of the group, yeah. One member of the group suggested hanging Reed for the killing, but they ultimately decided to banish him. So the next day he rode off alone, headed to Sutter's Fort. He arrived there at the end of October. Wasn't it self-defense though? He got hit in the head. He did get hit in the head, but I mean, you know, it's the Wild West and they're like, you can't just stab somebody. It's the but Wild West. Let's also, get wild. Bring a knife yeah, to a head hitting contest. <laughs> well, I mean, they wanted to hang him. Some of them wanted to hang him. And then others were like, nah, let's just kick him out of the group. And he's got to fend for himself. So he left his whole family with the big group and just left by himself. And he was like, I'll see you at Sutter's Fort kind of thing. His own family wanted to hang him? That's rough. No, I don't think his family. I think it was the other part, oh, the other so members of the group. The Donners? The Donners. And there were there were a couple other smaller families, families that were in there too. Okay. Yeah, it wasn't just those two families. It was a couple others. And then some single men and things like that. So okay. by the middle of October, the Donner family had made it to the Truckee River, which would lead them into the Sierra Nevada mountains. They had lost several cattle and oxen in tax from native tribes. A few days later, the men who were sent ahead to Sutter's Fort for supplies after they crossed the desert had returned. They had mules and food. Plus they brought two native American guides named Salvador and Luis. About a week later, George Donner was trying to fix his wagon and he cut his hand. Under normal circumstances, that might be fine, but remember, these are not normal circumstances. Soon after this, in early November, the group made their way towards the mountain summit and they arrived at Truckee Lake, now known as Donner Lake. They could see a storm was coming and they stopped for the night, but the storm brought snow. So in the morning, they woke up, and they were like, ah, oh, there's snow. There was five feet deep of snow. Oh, fuck. And, yeah, that was problematic because they couldn't get their wagons through that much snow. Yeah, that, that, I bet you four-wheel drive. <laughs> right. Yeah, four-wheel drive wagons. <laughs> Due to George Donner's accident when he cut his hand, his family had lagged behind the group a little bit. The bad weather forced the two groups to set up shelters. The larger group of about 60 people, not containing the Donner families, set up camp near the lake. They had a few abandoned, very rustic cabins and lean-to shelters to house several families and small children. The cabins were made of pine logs, had dirt floors, and poor roofs that leaked when it rained. The two Donner families and a couple of single men that had been traveling with them were about six miles behind at Alder Creek, where they set up some tents and bush shelters. One of the men near the lake, Patrick Breen, began to keep a daily journal. He noted the severity of the storms with a lot of snow falling and freezing temperatures. He also stated they were forced to kill most of their cattle as they were preparing to stay through the winter until spring. Several discussions and plans had been made to send groups out to cross the mountain, but the weather was always too severe. So they would say, hey, okay, tomorrow, the, this group of people are gonna try and hike out. And then they'd wake up and it was like, no, the weather was too bad and they couldn't go. That happened a few times. Around oh, mid-December, mm-hmm, but this time, in mid-December, a group of 17 men, women, and children 
set out on foot with 14 pairs of snowshoes. They made the snowshoes from like the materials that were uh, around for them. The group had also contained the two Native American guides, Salvador and Luis. A historian later called this group the Forlorn Hope. They had about six days of rations and some supplies like guns, blankets, and hatchets. Two of the snowshoe group members returned fairly quickly. By, the day, by day three of this journey, most of them were snowblind and all were having difficulty due to lack of nutrition prior to the outing. Because remember, up to that point, they weren't eating a whole lot of good food. They didn't have a lot of supplies, so they're just eating whatever they had available, which wasn't a lot. So you're not at your best nutrition level, and then you're having to snowshoe for God knows how long. You don't know how long it's going to take you. Yeah. Yeah. And no one was used to camping in 12 feet deep snow either. I doubt it. <laughs> Most people no. aren't. No, not if you're from Illinois. I mean, I don't know the weather in Springfield, Illinois, but I don't think they have a lot of snow like that. I don't know. Maybe somebody from Illinois can tell me I'm wrong. The, the group trekked on for days, but casualties would come during their outing. They got lost. Some became disoriented. Several members died and others just gave up. Those who survived resorted to eating flesh from the deceased members to survive. Salvador and Luis were warned after someone suggested killing them for food. So basically somebody said, hey, let's kill the guides for food. And one of the other members wasn't down with that. And so he went on the DL and told him, hey, you know, this dude wants to kill you. So you better skedaddle. And so they left the group to save themselves. Smart. However, <laughs> for sure. But by day 25 of the outing, the group came back across Salvador and Luis and shot them, rationalizing that they needed them for food. So, Fuck. yeah, they managed to survive for a few more days, but... They ended up at the same fate anyway. It took a few more days after that, and the group stumbled into a Native American village. After realizing the group needed help, they were given some food. One member, William Eddy, was assisted by tribal members to a nearby ranch in the Sacramento Valley. A rescue party was formed, and they backtracked to get the surviving members of the snowshoe group. There were only seven survivors after 33 days on this trip from leaving Truckee Lake. So 33 uh -huh. days they snowshoed. Jesus. And the, and there, if I remember, I think 17 people down to seven. Wow. Mm-hmm. So that was just that portion. Back at the camp where... The rest of everyone was, things were still bad and they were getting worse. They had no way of knowing how the snowshoe group was doing. They didn't know what was going on. Snow was continuing to fall most days. They there were some clear days, but the snow was so deep it didn't really matter. They couldn't do anything about it. They couldn't really even leave their their camp area. Several members in each group had died and food was becoming scarce. They resorted to eating animal hides and boiling animal bones repeatedly for soup, but those things gave little nourishment. George Donner was sick due to the injury in his hand because it had turned gangrenous, which affected more and more of his arm as time went by. So it just like creeped up his arm. Ugh. I, I can't even imagine Several members at each camp died during the months they were trapped on the mountain pass. After the snowshoe group had been rescued, efforts began to find the rest of the Donner Party. Officials in California were contacted, and the dire situation was explained. Funds were raised by the government and private citizens to help with the expedition. Luckily, the Mexican-American War had recently concluded, which made supplies and men available to help with the search parties. 
During the months of February, March, and April, four rescue parties made separate trips to Truckee Lake to bring survivors off the mountain. Those rescue parties included some of the members of the Snowshoe Party and also James Reed, who had made it solo to the fort. And he was sitting there waiting for his family. He's like, where the hell is everybody? And, you know, he had no way of knowing what was happening. So when they finally found out what was going on, he was like, all right, I'm going to go jump in these rescue parties and try and get to the rest of my family. I can't even imagine how terrifying that must have been. Yeah, just like it, yeah, because you can't just send a messenger and ask him what's going on. No. You just you send no. it to like maybe the fort they're expected to go to, and it's just like get sent back. Like, uh oh. <laughs> well, because you know, so they send these rescue parties, but even the rescue parties, some of the people were bagging out. So they have like fifteen members, or I can't even remember how many. But each each rescue party. People would get like days into it and go, I am not prepared to slog <laughs> through this snow. And they would quit. Jeez. So, you know, they're not getting very far. Yeah. Yeah. It took about two weeks each time to reach the camps. The first rescue party, known as the First Relief, gathered 23 members of both the Lake Camp and the Daughter Family Camp. The trip off the mountain was difficult, and a few people died along the way. The second relief group were able to get 17 more members of the Donner Party, but when they reached the summit, another storm hit, forcing them to take shelter for two days. Unfortunately, not all of this group survived either, and those who died were cannibalized. The third relief party were able to rescue five members safely off the mountain, and the fourth relief party evacuated the last living member. There were 87 original members of the Donner Party. A few members died along the way, or they left before reaching the mountains. So there were a few people that, when the trip started, they were older and had health problems, and unfortunately, they died just in general transit. Uh, so mm. when they made it to the mountain, the party was 81. There were 81 Donner Party members trapped on the mountain. 36 of them died and 45 survived. Oh. Yeah. Holy shit. The state of California created the Donner Memorial State Park near the location of the camps in 1927. There is a monument at the park that contains the names of the members of the Donner Party and indicates if they survived the ordeal. Wow. And I have been we have actually been i don't know if you remember or not but we've been to Truckee. is that when we drove to the vegas no when we lived in the bay area we uh drove over to go to reno a couple of times and we had to drive through Truckee to go there oh i don't remember that then <laughs> No, you were pretty young. You were pretty young. And and we literally like drove through. I think one time we kind of stopped. We actually debated. It's gorgeous there. We debated on living there, moving there and 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 living there. And then we started thinking about, well, this story, but the amount of snow that happens there. And both dad and I were like, no, no. If we want snow, we'll just go home. Yeah. But it is beautiful there. I've been to Donner Lake. It's super pretty. Is it creepy there? You get weird vibes? No, I was there for like a big corporate thing. So there was a lot of people. And honestly, I was, I didn't know very many people. So it was like, hi, bye. I think I was there for maybe a total of an hour and then I bailed. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Yeah, that's a so super that, interesting story. It's so right. weird. And and so that brings us back to Thanksgiving and that we can all be thankful that we weren't 
in the Donner Party and that we all have cell phones and we have other means of travel besides horse and buggy and oxen and wagons and things like that. So I'll tie it in that I'm thankful for that on Thanksgiving. Everybody make sure to go eat a whole lot of food this Thanksgiving too. (laughs) Right. Just in case you do get trapped on the mountain, you have a little bit more nutritional stores in your body. Yes. (laughs) Preferably don't eat grandma. No, I, (laughs) no, no, no. Well, Declan, what is a chaser that you have for us today to lighten our our mood and change our palate after those stories? So I have two chasers. One of them, I tried a new recipe this morning called accordion potatoes. I saw it on Instagram, and they they're like slivers of potatoes with notches cut in them, and they move like accordions. And so it gets a really good, like the inside stays super soft, but the outside gets crunchy and it's just like, oh, it's really good. And I recommend everyone should try it. How did you but, cook uh, it? I baked them. Did you air fry it? Oh, you baked it. Okay. I thought maybe yeah. you would have air fried it. I was going to, but the recipe uh, called for baking it and it, you have to bake it for like 50 minutes. And I didn't want to run the air fryer for that long. Oh. Well, it would have, air fryers take less time, so it wouldn't have taken, it probably would have taken like a half an hour. True. But still, that's still time for your air fryer to be humming. Yeah. And for some reason, I I cook too much bacon in mine, so it leaks a lot of grease (laughs) onto my counter. So if I run it for a long time, then I'll have a puddle of grease underneath it. Air fryer bacon is so good, though. It's the perfect consistency. It's like. It's so For some good. reason, whenever I cook bacon in the pan, like it's not even. I don't know why. Oh, no, you got to like, cook it in the oven. I'm too lazy for that. And no, it's only super works easy. if you have uh, one of the drying racks, right, to put the bacon on. No. No. Oh, okay. No, it's super easy. We just put it in the bo- – like a cookie sheet. You just lay out single strips of bacon and you put it in the – you can do it a couple of ways. The best way to do it is slow and you put it in there and you cook it at like 250 for like two hours. It's ridiculous. It takes so long. So it's not something that you can do if you need a quick bacon fix, but it is so good. The consistency is like the fat just like renders in a way different than if you cook it in a pan and... For all those vegetarians out there, I'm sorry I'm talking about bacon, but fuck, bacon is so good. I could never be a vegetarian because I would have to give up bacon and I would cry. So my second chaser is uh, a YouTube cooking show called Something's Burning by Burt Kreischer. It's like a mix between a podcast and a cooking show. So he invites his friends, like celebrities, it's usually comedians. And uh, he'll prepare a meal and he's like interviewing them, just chopping shit, like bullshitting with them. And it's super funny. <laughs> I recommend everyone it is a go good watch show. the uh, Whitney, Whitney Cummings and Tim Dillon episode. It's super fucking funny. Bert, what? Bert completely ruins the meal. <laughs> Do you remember what he cooked that episode? Yeah, he cooked... Like he did a little caviar tasting in the first part of the episode and then he cooked like some kind of salmon and it sounds disgusting. It was like salmon with, I think it was mayo mustard crust on top and he just, he put too much mayo on it. So it was just, it looked like a something that go in a tuna sandwich. Oh. Yeah, it was really funny. Well, I've seen a couple of those episodes, and they are funny. They make me laugh. Yeah. They're like an hour, though, so it it's more like a podcast than anything. But 
What is your chaser for us today, Mom? So my chaser is um, my friend Gina, our friend Gina. She has I, – I got her permission to tell this and use her name. So hi, Gina, because she listened to us. Hmm. Uh, she has a friend who has been in the hospital for months, months and months. I and think he, you might have already told this. I told you. I've been oh, saving okay. it. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I was actually going to mention it on another one, and then uh, something happened, and I didn't get to tell it. So uh, anyway, Gina has been uh, trying to cheer up her friend who's been in the hospital. And so every day she sends him jokes, bad mm -hmm. jokes, good jokes, all kinds of jokes. And I just think it's so awesome that she is taking the time to, you know, try and cheer him up and stay involved with him and help him think about something outside of the four hospital walls and the doctors and hospital bed and things like that. But I had to share a couple of my favorite jokes that she sent to him. <laughs> uh, so, like I said, good and bad jokes. What do you call a happy farmer? A jolly rancher? Yes, a jolly Ooh. rancher. <laughs> I got it. Good job. You did. <laughs> okay. What is green and has wheels? A big wheel. No. Or no, no, no. It's a green grass. machine. Sorry. Nope. <laughs> It's grass. I lied about the wheels. Wow. Tricky. Green machine is also <laughs> green and has wheels. <laughs> it I was does. half right. <laughs> I know. <laughs> but those were the jokes that she sent to him. Those are a couple that she shared with me. And I could not stop laughing. And I thought, you know, that's it's so fun and it's so sweet. And she's an awesome friend. I just love her so much that she does awesome things like that for everybody. And she's just great. So I've known her for yeah. a very long time. So have I. We, we should do uh, dinner with them sometime soon next time I'm back. Definitely, for sure. We'll we make should it make happen. Gina watch Old Boy again. Now you're listening, oh, Gina. She won't. <laughs> she won't. She. I, I guarantee she's screaming at her. Her I got more right recommendations now. for you, Gina. <laughs> oh shit. She's still mad at you about that recommendation. She said she will movie. never trust your recommendations again. <laughs> uh, everybody, I, I'm gonna reiterate it again. Go watch Old Boy on Netflix. <laughs> but be prepared to be so no, mad at the go. end. Just watch it. Just watch it and enjoy it. <laughs> Oh my gosh, it's so bad. <laughs> All right, folks. Wow, this is this is a long podcast. I think this is our it longest one ever. I think so. It was a long episode. Yeah. The Donner Party was a very long story. I knew it was. I'm glad because my my story was very short. I realized while reading it, I'm like, damn, I'm already done with this. <laughs> I've been talking for like five minutes. Yeah, but it ended up working out great to do it with the Donner Party because I I mean, I still tried to whittle it down, and I did just abridge the hell out of it, but it still was long, so. Yeah. Well, I had a blast talking to you and hearing about the more subtle, more the smaller details of the Donner Party, since yeah. a lot of us know the, the, the outcome of it. Not a, not, a lot of, right. not a lot of people know how they got to that point. So right, I, I exactly. like hearing of that. Yeah. It was nice chatting with you too, bud. Yeah. I love you. I love you too. Bye, everybody. Bye. Thanks for listening and supporting our podcast. We would love for you to follow us on your favorite podcast platform. And if you want to give us a five-star rating, we would forever be grateful. You can contact us at our email via thebrutalandbizarre at gmail.com or on our Instagram at the brutal underscore bizarre underscore boozy.